breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for joining me again this week. If you've listened before, if not, hopefully you're looking for a voice of reason, a voice of patriotism, belief in America, a belief that, yes, we have our mistakes, but that ultimately we are the best democracy in the planet and we are blessed to live here and have the history that we do. Every week I try to unravel, to dissect especially the world of political Islam, the Islamists and what's going on, but also sometimes the world of medicine, pop culture, whatever it might be. This week, we're going to follow up a little bit on what's happening in Afghanistan, talk about sort of what's happening in the American Muslim community and how the media continues to sort of use the identity politic of American Muslims. And last, are the Saudis really reforming? What's happening there as far as modernization of their textbooks and education, etc.? First, let's talk about the American Muslim population, Al Jazeera, Newsweek, other media arms have started to have had pieces around 9-11 talking about, uh, to quote Al Jazeera, remember Al Jazeera is out of Qatar, it's the state media of Qatar, and it is 90% plus, and this is fact, by the way, 90% plus Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers who work there, and basically one of the primary global media arms of Muslim Brotherhood, or the Ikhwan. And the title of their piece this week was, How Muslims Have Increased Their Influence in America Since 9-11. And sure enough, it goes on to, quote, Ilhan Omar, Keith Ellison, and talk about how their elections were were shifts in the influence, shifts towards increased not only prominence but increased influence, leadership, and effect on American policy and economics and otherwise by the American Muslim population. And here... Here's the narrative. After 9-11 attacks, Muslim Americans were stigmatized, discriminated against, and perceived as enemies in their own country. Community activists have said over the following 20 years, despite U.S. government programs targeting their communities and the rise of social and political bigotry, Muslim Americans solidified their identity and carved a space for themselves in the mainstream political structure. Look at this narrative. It is like the David and Goliath. Yeah, they, they weren't given a hand up by the the uh, standards and and principles of American freedom. No, it was actually they they fought and defeated the bigots, the anti-Muslims. They still got prominence despite everything against them. That's the Islamist narrative. They divide the world into the land of Islam and the land of war. America is the land of war. That's the narrative on there. Just another piece down the margins on the homepage of Al Jazeera about the end of the forever war that Western colonialists have withdrawn from Afghanistan, that Western colonialists and imperialists are no longer able to invoke their oppression on Muslim brothers. That's the way Qatar views the Taliban. 
That's the way their state media views the Taliban. And there's no dissension shown on their pages or elsewhere. No dissension in the American Muslim narrative about what is actually being heard. The Qatari media arm that seeks to weaken American influence, that seeks to advance the Islamist movement, quoted another American Muslim at at Brooklyn College, Mustafa Bayoumi, who said that while there were always Muslims in the U.S., the Muslim-American political identity was largely formed after 9-11 in response to explosion of bigotry. So our entire identity as American Muslims wasn't about freedom or liberty wasn't about being able to practice our faith like we could nowhere else in the world, religious freedom. No, it was about fighting bigotry against Muslims. This is the narrative. If you don't understand what is coming out in global media by the Islamists, you need to, because we are so far behind in the information war, it is frightening. He said prior to 9-11, 2001, there was hardly any general recognition of Muslim Americans as a group. Oh, really? He said once you see there's an organized social hostility, then your identity gets formed in response to that as a way of not just protecting yourself, but claiming a space for yourself. And then they go into increased participation in city councils, school boards. They quote Peter El-Sufi. Outreach and Partnership Manager of the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, a think tank focused on Muslim communities, said Muslim American civil and civic engagement have seen huge improvement over the past two decades. With Muslims becoming a voting bloc, politicians are acknowledging them. Then presidential candidate Joe Biden released a platform for Muslim American communities ahead of the elections last year. He addressed two Muslim groups as the Democratic nominee for a president. He also addressed their grievances. He said, as president, I'll work with you to rip the poison of hate from our society, honor your contributions, and seek your ideas. Biden said at a virtual event for Muslim advocates last October, my administration will look like America, Muslim Americans serving at every level. So, he then nominated Kazir Khan, the father of the U.S. Army captain killed in Iraq as a member of the U.S. Commission to National Religious Freedom, a position that I held once for four years. It's term limited. I was there from 12 to 16. I'm sure Mr. Khan is a worthy appointee, and certainly God bless his son for the service that he gave our country. And this is not to say that none of the appointments or engagements that the Biden administration makes are not worthy of patriotic American Muslims that may be serving. But the bottom line is is the narrative being pushed by American Muslim organizations that claim to lead our communities is one of grievances, is one that we are supposed to vote like a block. You, you, saw, you read that. You heard what I read to you from Al Jazeera that we are now a voting block. Does that make any sense? A voting block? One of the the focuses of my movement and work 
with other folks that have other movements similar against political Islam is to separate mosque and state, to believe that some may be socialist, some may be capitalist, some may be gun rights advocates, some may not, some may be international security and a stronger border, some may not. So how could they vote as a block? None of those issues really fall in line with particular strains of any faith. You could make a faith-based argument for the way you interpret your own faith. But to say that we would vote as a block is exactly what the Islamist party movement is. It is one that thinks that you can have one political party based on your faith identity. And thus you have the political arm, the political influence, the political disinformation program that is political Islam and its Islamist movements. So, turn over from Al Jazeera and Qatar to Newsweek, and you have a piece that looked at all the different identities and so-called famous American Muslims and said that they have come to a new age, a new power on the cover of the Newsweek graphic was American Muslims have now gained significant influence and power. And I was interviewed for that piece, and so was Omar Qudrat, the two only conservative Muslims interviewed, and it ended up being gratuitous quotes to basically say that, yeah, there's a few misguided Muslims that voted for Trump, but bottom line is is. The majority are fighting the Muslim ban and fighting all this other stuff that is the real problem with America and why populations as wonderful as Muslims should be treated. This is not to say that there isn't any strains of anti-Muslim bigotry, but to say that that is what characterizes us 20 years after 9-11 is absurd. To say that we have no deep work that has to be done within that actually engendered the radicalization possible to create the Al-Qaeda adherents, the ISIS adherents, the Muslim Brotherhood movements in the West that came here to proselytize their ideologies rather than actually reform and learn about America, I think is beyond ignorant. And that was the narrative from Newsweek. That was the narrative that ultimately, again, the prominence didn't matter that the Olympian, they again highlighted, even though I talked to the reporter about this, Steve Fries, I told him it's a shame that the fencer, who I think got a bronze or something like that, was the only Muslim highlighted in the Olympics and over-highlighted and hyperbolically so to the point where she almost carried the torch rather than Michael Phelps. And never mind Delilah Muhammad who won two golds, but because she didn't wear a hijab and look obviously Muslim, she was ignored. She wasn't the face of American Islam. The face of American Islam is the Islamist orthodoxy that lies about their ideology, they are not pro-LGBTQ, they are not pro-feminist. As we've talked many times before, it's Me Too movement except for Muslims, and yet 
the left keeps pushing forward the Islamists and ignoring the rest of the community, the diversity of that community, because it serves it serves their goals to work with authoritarian theocrats from Iran to Chicago because those authoritarians can bring them large amounts of money and votes and the appearance, whether it's true or not, the appearance of influence, because that's all they want is the appearance of influence. And this appearance of influence leaves little doubt that it's not just the domestic Islamists and their theocratic movements that reject secular government, reject American uh, um, morality, and see America as evil rather than as good. But actually they work hand in glove with global Islamist movement from Qatar to Turkey to the Taliban. They may not be as overtly militant, as the Khomeinis in Tehran or the Taliban in Kabul, but they certainly share an animus for America and Israel and our allies, and they certainly share the anti-Semitism and bigotry and hatred and belief that anywhere where there's not Muslim majority and Islamists especially in control is the land of war or the land of basically cooperation. Aqat, as they call it in Arabic contract and those areas are simply theirs to emigrate to in order to escape persecution from secular dictatorships or to uh, basically uh, try to influence their policy to help ascend islamists that's the that's the story ladies and gentlemen and nobody sees it we continue 20 years post 9-11 to continue to help the theocrats. Mind you, in a country founded on countering theocracy, the United States of America. And one of the most influential countries with the largest mosque in America is Turkey. Erdogan is slowly building his empire, his neo-caliphate, cultish following domestically and globally as he works with the Islamist movements and the Islamists give him a hat tip from Ilhan Omar on very little criticism of Turkey it's not a coincidence because their fealty for Turkey's Erdogan's AKP the Muslim Brotherhood of Turkey is greater and I say this without any hesitation is greater than their fealty for American constitutionalism and our country and its history. And if you don't agree with me, prove it to me based on their public comments. We are all a product of the sum of our public commentaries, especially politicians and thought leaders. And if that's what Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and ISNA and other organizations are, then please Show me how the summary, the summation of their public commentary equals one that loves America, believes in constitutional law, and yet rejects Turkey's ascension of its AKP in Islamism. Ilhan Omar's silence on Afghanistan was also quite interesting, if you ask me. And this week, Turkey signaled support 
for the Taliban-led Afghanistan. As the UN General Assembly met, Erdogan was making it clear that he wants Western powers to provide to provide aid to Afghanistan, regardless of the political process in Kabul. In an apparent break with transatlantic attempts to use foreign aid as leverage to restrain the Taliban's human rights abuses. He told the General Assembly the people of Afghanistan have been left alone. They were abandoned with the consequences of instability and the conflicts that have lasted more than four decades. Erdogan told the UNGA, regardless of the political process, Afghanistan needs needs the help and the solidarity of the international community. Are you kidding me? A NATO member wants us to help terrorists that are running a government in Afghanistan. That is a so-called NATO member. I'll remind you, Mayor Erdogan of Istanbul decades ago said, democracy is like a train. You use it to get to where you want to go and then you come off. And you get off and you go where you need to. No longer democracy. That's what he said. And by the way, Erdogan and Turkey have been quite instrumental in helping Kabul run its airport and other things as the United States left a vacuum, as has Qatar. So, this is where we're at. Make no mistake, the axis of Islamists, which grows to include not only the green of Islamism, but the red-green of the far, far left authoritarians, of the socialists, communists from, from China to Venezuela. This red-green axis is now beginning to come together, and we are sitting back and imploding in, in significant domestic division and political divisiveness. Well, continue to watch it. Continue to... Soak in, if you will. Now, you're not going to hear it very many other places other than on this podcast and other folks that are actually paying attention to what's happening in the Islamist areas. But at the end of the day, Islamism is continuing to coalesce. And we need to develop, as I told you in the last podcast around 9-11, that if anything, the debacle in Afghanistan proved was that we need a non-military solution to the threat that the Islamists, tapping into a quarter of the world's population that are Muslim, that the Islamists are seeking in the destruction of Western democracies. Will those democracies implode on their own? Will the Islamists continue to try to push us towards implosion? Yes, they will. I don't believe it will implode. No, I think that ultimately as we swing to extremes, we will swing back towards the middle successfully and realize that pan-open borders that allow a, a lawlessness about those who come in, that ultimately a lack of focus on ideology when it comes to extremism and radical Islam and a lack of focus globally when it comes to what our threats are, all of these things will start to change and transform and will begin to work with true Muslim leaders who are reformists that want to counter political Islam. And how do we do that? 
I've talked to you about that before. We'll continue to talk about it in the episodes forthcoming on this podcast. There's a report this week. I talked to you that I mentioned that I wanted to talk about Saudi Arabia. There's a report this week that came out from an organization called Impact SE. Also, a further step forward, review of changes in remaining problematic content in Saudi textbooks from 21 to 22. And this came out just a few weeks ago. And they are an internationally based organization that has used a methodology that is well described in their report, their 78-page report, that looked at standards based on UNESCO, UN declarations, and international recommendations and documents on education for peace and tolerance. Their methodology is designed to consider every detail within the textbooks. It does not paraphrase, rely on interpretations, or attempt to illustrate preconceived notions. They seek to endorse in school education respect, individual others, no hate, no incitement, peacemaking, unbiased information, gender identity and representation, sexual orientation, sound prosperity and cooperation. And if you look at the reviews now, it would take quite a while to go through through all that, but I do think it is important to highlight a few things that are key. First of all, there's no doubt that there's been some progress made. And as Eldad Pardo in the preface makes it clear, he says a country cannot develop and overcome economic and social challenges by fomenting hate toward the other at home and abroad and clinging to extremist traditionalism and gender in other areas. Some democratization, openness, and social mobility are essential. Rigidity and hate for the other will not serve to unlock the potential of a nation, while respect for others is key to prosperity and security. It opens doors of trade, cooperation, and the free flow of ideas and resources. Now, Saudi's still been prospering, and despite its, its draconian medieval interpretations of Islam, but... Obviously, it has limited and had no free markets, creativity, and its only advances have been based on a mineral found under the soil and not too much that's being done by the humanity in their country. And that's hopefully what an opening of the Saudi society will prove, that while it will be bumpy and will be messy, ultimately it will prove that Saudi success will come like any other countries with democracy and human rights recognitions and the belief in the equality of all under God. We have yet to see that transpire. But they are making some slow progress. This impact report points out the following. And I'm going to point it out because from a perspective of my listeners, I hope you understand that there's one of the key principles of reform that I think is necessary you can delete passages, which is good, take them out of the circulation, if you will, like, like they do on online with Facebook and with YouTube. You delete things that are advocating violence and incitement, etc. You know, we can have the free speech argument about that, which I've fallen on the side of free speech almost every time. But... I say almost every time because if somebody's advocating direct violence and, and terror, that, that is not free speech. 
But other than that, the the advocacy of extremism, of, of the ideology of supremacy, that needs the antiseptic of sunlight. But the key as we go through a couple examples is of, of what the Saudis have been deleting is that deletion is not reform. Because if the textbooks are still that are within the corporate boardrooms of the Wahhabi clerical shura councils, the leading theocratic councils, if they still look upon Jews as not equal, if they still look upon women as needing a half a vote, even if they remove offensive passages that were born from this supremacy, the supremacy doesn't go away, does it? There needs to be an articulation and interpretation of the same, not the same passages, but other passages that then negate those passages and make them incompatible. I'm going to give you two passages of tefsir, which is interpretation, that they talk about at the opening of this report that looks at what has been changed in Saudi textbooks. Textbook for grades 10 through 12 in 2020 removed the following. Students were taught Quranic verses detailing Israelites who went fishing on the Sabbath but denied doing so in front of God and therefore were turned into monkeys. Passage chapter 7, verse 163 to 166. So according to the now removed chapter, those wrongdoers were from among the Jews that were turned into real or actual monkeys, indicating that the story should have been interpreted literally and not as a metaphor. And basically goes on to say that these are simply, you cannot trick God, and that the way Jews acted when they threw their nets into the sea on Friday for fishing and then pulled the nets out on Sunday and they say, we did not do anything on Saturday. Allah punished the wrongdoers from among the Jews by turning them into real monkeys. So therefore, that somehow fixes it. Okay, maybe. But it doesn't then add any notations about the true equality of Muslims, Jews, Christians, and all humanity. No. There's a little sort of a fix. But again, better than it was. Next one. Removed the hadith. The hadith that said from grade 7. This is 7th grade stuff that was there. Hadith about a sick Jewish boy being cured after embracing Islam followed by Muhammad praising Allah for saving the boy from hellfire, implying that he would have gone to hell simply because he is a Jew. It was removed from different Islamic textbooks that inserted this hadith in different contexts. So, what does that mean? And the passage, by the way, was from report of the Hadith of Ennis that said, A young Jewish boy who was in the service of the Prophet fell ill, so the Prophet went to visit him. He sat down by his head and said to him, Embrace Islam. He, the Jewish boy, looked at his father and was sitting behind him, beside him, and he said to him, Obey, Abul Qasim. So he embraced Islam and the Prophet stepped out, 
saying, Praise be to Allah who has saved him from hellfire. So, this is what it said, and now it was removed. So instead of implying now that the sick Jewish boy would have gone to hell, the hadith in 2021 this year was shortened to simply mention Muhammad visiting the boy as an example of the Prophet's righteous conduct toward Muslims. Now it's interesting, did they actually change that hadith in the narration of Ennis? It was changed in the school textbook, so that's that's some great progress actually of state publication arm of textbooks that has removed the offensive part. And all it says now is a young Jewish boy who was in the service of the Prophet fell ill, so the Prophet went to visit him. That's great. Nothing there about anti-Semitism or other aspects of what was thought to be hadith that was used to radicalize Muslims into hating the other, especially Jews. I would tell you that we would need the corollary, the correlating text that the actual hadith has been changed. And remember, the oral tradition is a scientific one in which there is corroboration of this person to that person, he said and she said, and not usually she, but the, the, the men said this to one another and this is why it's true. So there are many scholars that have tons of texts written about hadith which was actually misrepresented. So was this text misrepresented or did the Saudi government just unilaterally decide to remove it? Which is fine, but they need to say that. They need to say that what is the reason for removing it, what makes it inauthentic other than the fact that it's offensive and bigoted, is that what was Islam or is their Islam now changing? This is the difficulty of reformers, isn't it? is that it has to have some academic adherence to the four corners of any document, if you will. What is the metaphor, what is not, etc. And these are the evolutions of reform. The report goes on to talk about many passages removed that talk about Jews and Christians as enemies of God, as infidels. And those were removed. Hadith and Sirah, interpretations of scripture talking about children taught an anti-Semitic account of Jews poisoning and attempting to kill the prophet. Again, removed. So, it's a 78-page report. I think it highlights a number of areas that are very positive and I think are definitely moving in the right direction. But just like the Abraham Accords, I said it's one thing for them to preach synergy and partnership and friendship with the state of Israel, but it's another for the imams to talk about theologically why that is permitted and why it is real. That's what we do here on this podcast, isn't it? It's keep them honest week to week. Share this with your friends. Share it with others. Every week I try to drill down on some of the topics of the day globally that I think share and have a lot of information in them that we can use to move forward productively rather than destructively. 
Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. And find our organization, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, at AIFdemocracy.org. And on Facebook at MZ Jasser. And please share this podcast and other podcasts at the Blaze Podcast Network. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.